Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 1,996. Be prepared to be inspired. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars Yeah. Today I'm in Buchanan, New York, with a very special guest by the name of Stephen Dibden. Stephen, welcome to Cars Yeah. Do you have any gear, and are you ready to release the clutch? I think I am, yeah. We're going to have some fun talking about a very cool, innovative business that you have. But before we get started, what's one little thing that people don't know about you, Stephen? I almost became a horse riding instructor. Oh, okay, now now we're going down a, a different path, and our our listeners will notice you have a bit of a uh, UK accent to your voice. You're originally from the UK, right? Yeah, I uh, grew up in southeast London, uh, in a neighbourhood called Charlton near Greenwich. I lived there until I was uh, thirty and moved over here for a woman. For yeah, well, that happens sometimes, doesn't it? It, it does. Yes. Ch- chasing women around the world. So horses. So you've gone from real live horses to horsepower to producing unique parts. What was it about horses that fascinated you so much? Um, it was actually sort of accidental. When I was very young, I'd had a had a number of operations of all things on my stomach and the surgeon had suggested that i took up horse riding as a way of strengthening it up again forgetting that i was coming from a working class family in, <laughs> in the in the inner city and had no i um had no idea of it and so i started um uh, so my parents found a local uh stables not too far from town and my dad used to take me up there he got bored of wait, watching me learn to ride so he decided to learn as well and oh, cool. uh, and it's became something that we did together for uh, for many years he he's 90 now and he stopped riding when he was in his 80s so whoa yeah he's he's pretty spry <laughs> well you know that's pretty cool my grandfather born raised in texas my dad grew up there on a farm my grandpa i grew up in southern california to me was always a real live cowboy he rode a horse almost every day up until his uh, mid 80s when he passed and uh, horses are fascinating my wife rode horses as a kid they're incredible animals And I would assume that learning to ride horses, you learned a lot about, I guess they would call it husbandry or horses and their mentality, their outlooks. I mean, they're very unique animals. Oh, absolutely. And there was a, you know, there's definitely, they have personalities, they have senses of humor. And, uh, you know, there was a couple of horses I rode that I still remember very fondly now. And I think it also sort of, it was my first real experience of being in control of something that went faster than I could cycle. Oh, yeah. So there was that sort of feeling of sort of speed. Admittedly, it probably wasn't as fast as it felt at the time. And also, it taught me how to sort of feel things literally through the seat of my pants you know you, <laughs> yeah, you, yeah and it actually that actually translates if you're if you're racing old cars or if you're driving old cars in a spirited manner you that actually translates very well you know you can feel when the, you can feel where the power is you can feel where the car's balanced and stuff right. like that and, and it's not that far removed from from learning how a horse you know whether you got a horse balanced ready for a jump or something like that it was and and it was one of those translations that happened really nicely you know that's very cool and what comes to mind is my first visit to the mercedes-benz museum in stuttgart 
which if you've ever been there is a fascinating place and you go up this elevator and when you get off and you start the tour which takes you around down through this spiral uh, exhibit the first thing you see is a giant full-size stuffed horse which of course is the beginning of man moving and being able to control himself moving and then that evolves into the first combustion engine electric vehicles and all the sorts so uh yeah there you go and you know horses never went away they're still here people are still enjoying oh, yeah. them so very cool let me give you a proper introduction we're going to dive into a very neat business you and your wife have developed uh, Stephen Dibden is the co-owner of Additive Restoration where he works with his wife, Kim. They started their business in 2016, and they keep unique cars on the road by reverse engineering and manufacturing parts using 3D scanning, printing, and other cutting-edge technologies. In addition, they support restorations and special projects with problem-solving and design solutions. He's a born and bred Londoner, as he mentioned. Stephen trained as an industrial model maker in London during the late 80s. He's worked in the British Museum as a director for Smart Design, a world-renowned industrial design consultant and New Lab, a hardware tech hub in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Stephen has worked on projects from consumer to medical and industrial products, and he holds a number of patents to his name. He has a long list of questionable car choices, which I think we'll hear about, to keep life interesting and full. And, you know, before we get into this, Stephen, uh, as we talk, you're working on uh, prototyping a part on the machine behind you for an old Ferrari, right? That's right. So we um, we're working with a owner um, that has a Ferrari one six six. Some of the details at the front have been changed over the years, as you as you're probably aware. You know, this is a, these cars were on the track quite a bit. They'd they'd have the occasional uh, shunt. Tap. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Tap, uh, and they'd get because at the time it was you know they'd be race track repairs or sort of the easiest way of getting back on there. You know, some of the details would get lost. So we um, so. One of the things that's missing, one of the things that's wrong at the front of the car at the moment is the headlamp bezels and the headlamps are incorrect and so are the side lights. So um, I scanned the original car. We found original photographs the day the car was released from the factory in Vrindali. And using that, I was able to sort of forensically rebuild the um, the front of the car to where it should be and where the, what the bezels should look like. Wow. And so we're at the point now where we've done renderings, we've talked to people who have literally written the book on finale built cars and um, and set, got their thumbs up. So the next stage now is we're 3D printing a, a, tri- a test bezel in a plastic that we'll offer up to the car, make sure it looks right, it fits into what's going on there, and we can actually look at it in reality. And if that works fine, I can then use a computer-controlled mill to machine out a hammer buck that we can hand off to a body shop, or we can even just directly 3D print and steal to give them, you know, and then we can chrome plate that and basically get it back to where it was 50-odd years ago, or 60-odd years ago. Yeah, now, this is so cool. We're going to talk more about this in a minute. First, we're going to have a little listen with our uh, loving sponsors who keep this show on the air, so thank you to them. Give them a listen, give them a little love, and we will be right back. Covercraft has the most complete line of custom seat covers available. Choose between the polycotton seat savers Endura Precision Fit Custom Seat Covers, Leatherette Precision Fit Custom Seat Covers, and their durable Carhartt Seat Covers. 
They're all easy to install and remove. And guess what? They're machine washable too. Easy cleanup to make them look brand new. No more worries about the kids spilling on your seats or your pets damaging your expensive upholstery or leather. Covercraft's quality seat covers protect from damaging pet claws, pet fur, hair, mud, moisture, food, drink spills, drool from permanently damaging your vehicle's fine surfaces. Headrest and armrest covers and color options are also available on many of the styles. And I've got a great offer for you. If you use the code YEAH21, Y-E-A-H-21 at Covercraft.com, they'll give you 10% off plus free shipping. That's right, 10% off and free shipping with the code YEAH21 at checkout. Covercraft, protecting the things that move you. Visit Covercraft.com today. Last year, I changed my collector car coverage to American Collectors Insurance. That's who now protects my Porsche Turbo, the one I call my Orange Crush. But did you know they also insure your valuable collections of automobilia and other collectibles? If you're like me, you've invested in a lot of cool collectibles over the years. Those items are valuable. And if you were to lose them in a theft or a fire, well, try to get your normal homeowner's insurance to pay you what they're worth. Good luck with that. American Collectors Insurance provides you with assurance and confidence that your collectibles are fully covered. They insure a lot of items, including automobilia, wine, baseball cards, books, figurines, die-cast models, model trains, glassware, sports memorabilia, toys, and a whole lot more. American Collectors Insurance, they've been protecting us enthusiasts since 1976. They provide you with an agreed value insurance policy backed by a long history of taking care of their clients. Give them a call today for your personal agreed value quote at 866-ACI-YEAH. That's 866-224-9324. Tell them you're a friend of mine, Mark Rains here at Cars Yeah. American Collectors Insurance. Classic car insurance designed by collectors for collectors. Automotive enthusiasts just like you and me. That's American Collectors Insurance. So, Stephen, we're back. So you talked a little bit about what you do. I'd love to talk about how you and your wife, Kim, got into this business. When I introduced you, you talked about some of the things that you used to do. You obviously are very technical-minded. You love cars. Uh, you figured out a way to keep these old cars as original as possible, and I say original, you're remanufacturing parts, but boy, when you have an old 166, it's kind of hard to go down to the parts store and buy a headlight bezel. So what? how'd you get into this business? Well, I'd, um, I'd been director at um, a startup in, in Brooklyn and got pretty burnt out doing it. And uh, my wife and I joked that was the last real job I had. <laughs> and I was fortunate enough, I'd met a uh, chap called Santos Badaro, who runs Dominic's European Car Cares up in White Plains, New York. Mm-hmm. And this was, a, this was a, a garage that was started by his father in the 60s. And it's, he runs it with his brother and sister. And they specialize in a lot of Italian classics. Um, so Ferraris, Lancia, that sort of thing. And we managed to hit it off. And I'd had this idea of basically doing for other people what I was already doing for my own car, which is if you can't find it, you 3D print, I'd 3D print it or I'd CNC machine it or I'd find a way around it. And uh, I spoke to him and said, um, I've got this idea for a business. Do you think it has legs? And you know what us car people are like. We're all terrible enablers. But of course, no, it's old cars. Of course, it's a good idea. You know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Go for it, Stephen. No <laughs> yeah, problem. Exactly. This will be yeah, easy. Be fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
I planned to go up there for 20 minutes and chat with him. And I arrived at the same time as his wife, as his sister Vera turned up with a, a tray full of lasagna. And being an Italian family, I was forced to eat lasagna with everybody else. <laughs> Didn't take that much effort, to be honest. Uh, yeah, and, no doubt. And after three hours of talking with him and his brother Frank, I came away with a box full of broken Ferrari indicator switches and a question about whether or not I could reverse engineer and manufacture a rotor arm for a uh, Oscar twin spark 1500 engine which were sort of well i think so you know this is going to need some there's some fairly big technical questions about the materials we can use for something that's going to transmit you know 50,000 volts and spin at five you know 4,000 rpm because the red line's like 8,000 on this car uh, so sort of went away and uh, and that's how it started and, and from there we slowly grew it was sort of a lean operation i carried on consulting as an engineer for uh, as a design engineer for clients and then started building up more of the the business side of things and as the business grew up slowly cut down on the engineering stuff and now now we ended up in a in a room in in buchanan filled with really fun toys you know well you know this is a great story because it's what cars yeah is all about and i tell people lots of times people will say well i want to start my own business i have this idea but i how do i just stop my job i've got a wife a mortgage kids whatever it might be all these things that i won't say they trap us but they're lifestyle moments in time that disable us sometimes from doing what we maybe want to do. And I've talked to a lot of people in my life who have very great careers. They do wonderful things, but they're not that happy. And they're living for retirement, if you will. Yeah. Or the weekends or the evenings. It's like, why go through life that way? But you did it a very smart way, uh, unless you're born into a nice trust fund or you have investors that want to give you lots of money or a benefactor. Uh, we're all looking for all those things. You know, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about the ways this works, because when this 3D printing first came out, we all saw it being done with clay or with plastics and things. And we said, OK, that's fine. You make little toys and stuff. But how can this evolve? Well, now it's evolved into the medical in industry. And like you've done, so what are the different uh, types of materials that you can prototype from? You can actually end up with a final piece and hand it to a client other than, you know, great if they can make a wood buck and pound it out, but maybe some people can't do that. Well, that's the interesting thing is, I mean, people are usually unaware. I've been using um, additive manufacturing, which is sort of the basically the industry term for 3D printing since the mid-90s. It's been around that long, you know, which is good Lord. That's almost 30 years ago now. Oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, I know. Isn't that horrendous? But the technology has matured massively in the last 10 years and absolutely almost a vertical sort of um, uptick in, in abilities in the last five years. So there's a technology called multi-jet fusion that allows us to print in a nylon. The finished part has the same sort of texture that you'd expect from a, uh, an injection molded uh, plastic part. The quality of the material is actually probably better than the stuff that you found on cars 30 years ago that was injection molded. Certainly, if it was, say, Italian plastics from the 80s. So well, I was going to say, the plastic door handles that snapped off in your hand and knobs and switches and all those little things that uh, weren't that great. They weren't really yeah. designed to last very long, I don't think. They were pretty frangible, let's be honest. Yeah. yeah. But uh, so, so that's been a great material. We, we actually directly, and we have a, um, we have a website. And on there, we have a store where a lot of stuff that we've developed, you can just go on there because the machinery is quite expensive. The, that machine and the associated equipment's between uh, 500 and 750,000. Ouch. You, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you need, you need to have it running 24 7 to be able to make sense economically. Um, we have a partner in France that we work with um, that we have a great relationship with. And that allows us to. Um, we have it set up so that as soon as someone orders, it automatically it's manufactured on demand. 
It oh, nice. starts getting printed. It gets sent to us initially because I always want to make sure we do a, a quality check and make sure it came out as expected. We've not had a rejection yet, but we always, I, I never want to find that. No, the, the first one that will go wrong will be the one you don't look at. Exactly, exactly. So it, you know, it adds a day to the, the time to get the turnaround, but it means that we get something that we, we feel com- we can stand behind. Uh, so we end up making things like, say, um, the... Um, Switch components for 1960s Ferraris, which are sort of notorious for falling apart. Um, where, um, you know, grills for um, Lancia 037s. Um, wherever we get exposed to something that there isn't, there isn't already some uh, a manufacturer out there, um, or it's such a small production number that it just it's it doesn't make sense to actually do injection molding tooling, which gets quite expensive. We can do this, and we can get something out there that we hope is a reasonable price. And we know that the quality is as good, if not better, than the original, and it looks just like the original. Uh, and, and you can go straight to the website, you can go to the store, you can search around there, say, oh, yeah, there's that really obscure part I need for a Rover 3500S. <laughs> um, nice. Uh, and I can buy it off there. Every so often, we, we, um, we, we tend to do what people ask. So as long as we can get that set up, it, once it's set up, it's there. We, did, we ended up doing a um, gear for an ISA Revolta electric window regulator. Oh, my God. And it's, and it's one of those things where we did it. We did it once, and I thought, oh, we'll just put it on the store. You know, and maybe about once every year, we get someone ordering it, and the conversation's always us. I can't believe you guys make this. And our conversation is, I can't believe you want to buy one. Yeah, you know? can't believe you, yeah I can't <laughs> believe you need one. Well, part of uh, coming up with a part is scanning. And you could help me understand this. Do we have the wherewithal today with these smartphones to download an app that I could, say, scan a part in my garage and send it to you and you could make it from that or do, is scanning equipment still a little bit too technical you can i mean there are higher end smartphones that have what's known as lidar technology which is uh, a 3d scanning technology the accuracy at the moment isn't there it's it's a good guide to get you started um the equipment we use is we have two structured light scanners one that's handheld that basically allows us to do an entire car and anything bigger than a loaf of bread we use that uh-huh. anything smaller we have another one which is a desktop scanner and it uh, with a turntable and it'll pick it up um the accuracy on those is we're looking at an accuracy on the on the small parts of less than a thousandth of an inch it's remarkably accurate and then on the handheld it's at 0.1 of an inch uh, sorry point i'm um, sorry uh, it's about uh, four thousandths of an inch oh, which wow. is still which you know to be honest with you by the time you put paint on a car it's it's going to vary that much anyway you know, but at the end of the day, they're—I've um, used this phrase before—they're they're fancy tape measures. What they do is <laughs> they allow us to measure it really accurately yeah. and take that information, and then it's what happens to it afterwards that turns it into something that's usable. So we—we've—I don't think we've ever used a three D scan directly to produce a part. What we do is we use that as a reference. I bring it into uh, a, a CAD software that allows me to develop it as a real part and as a, a proper computer model. And that way, before we actually even manufacture it, I can do things like uh, stress simulations to make sure it's going to hold up. We can look at sort of whether or not it's going to deflect under heat, all of those sort of things, and make sure that everything's spot on. Because if we start scanning a part that's 60 years old and has been used for those 60 years, all we're going to do is replicate that original damage and that original wear. Oh, I got you. Okay, it could be warped and twisted a little bit from wear or something's not quite right. I see. Exactly, yeah. So by having... So we use it as a frame of reference, but it, you know, you have to, it, it, at the end of the day, it's, it's, a, 
it's another tool that allows us to get to a point where we're producing something that's as good, if not better than the original and is appropriate for the age of the car. So it, none of the products we make ever should look, you should never notice them, frankly. Yeah, that if we've makes do, sense. If we've, if we've done our job right, you won't even notice we've been there. Wow. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, so scanning the saggy door pocket on my old Porsche 911 probably isn't going to get me what I really want in the end because it's all twisted and pulled and it's not sitting right, not formed right, but I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, I know. you know, it's really incredible what can be done today. We had some carpet put in our house last year and the guy walked in with his phone and didn't even have a tape measure. He just walked around and measured the whole room with his phone and, you know, spit spot, you're done. And I said, what are you doing? He goes, I'm measuring your room. Huh? <laughs> so, oh, okay. I've seen that before, I think. Pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. And, and the cool thing about the technology is it, it's a great way of recording. We, we're starting to do a lot of work where we have um, clients with unique race cars or one-off prototypes where they want to be able to use the car. But what they want is, um, before they do so, is they, they, they want it completely documented. So say if they're on the track and they, they have a shunt. Or, you know, we've already scanned the car. We've got the basic data there. They can go back to that and they can use that for making a body bark. Very or, wise. Or you can, you can pick up where the suspension pickups were, all of those details. And you can put, and then you basically, I mean, it sounds a little flippant because there's still a lot of work involved, but basically it gives them an undo button so that they can, they yeah. know where it is beforehand. So yeah. to do that, it's race insurance. Yeah. Well, you know, and you Brits, uh, when you race over in England, you guys do bump into each other. They don't really allow that over here, but it's real racing when you talk about vintage racing. Oh, God, it's terrifying watching Goodwood, isn't it? Oh, I, I see these GTOs and, you know, these beautiful <laughs> old cars, Jaguars and things, and they're bumping and they're crashing. And it's like, eh, well, that's what they're made for. So, yeah, scares me to death. But uh, nonetheless, we're going to take a short break and thank our sponsors again. We come back. I want to talk a little bit about a challenge uh, because what you're doing is def definitely technology oriented, challenge oriented. So keep that thought in mind. We'll be right back. You listeners know that I'm a huge car care fanatic, and my friends at AutoGeek created their Wolfgang Deep Gloss Paint Sealant for perfectionists like you and me. Wolfgang a Deep Gloss Paint Sealant is designed to provide long-lasting protection and a glossy, slick finish that, well, it's unmatched. The use of polymer technology ensures your paint is protected from environmental contaminants, those damaging UV rays, and lasts up to three months long. By providing the glossy look of carnauba wax with the longevity of a synthetic formula, Wolfgang a Deep Gloss Paint Sealant is the best of both worlds. Go to autogeek.net to get yours for the best product selection on the internet today, along with their skilled technical support. autogeek.net is where I go for all my detailing needs. That's autogeek.net. I've discovered Linkage. It's a new quarterly publication and website that covers the automotive market, driving, restoring, collecting, and discovering your passion for motor vehicles. Linkage is about experiences, opinions, and values. Linkage is an actual, informed, reasoned opinion based on first-hand experiences. A talented Linkage team covers the automotive world, the people who share your passion and mine, smart, considered, rational, and experienced opinions, ones you can learn from and grow. That includes our passion that drives auctions and the collector car market. So come with me and join us on this journey. And be sure to use the code CARSYEAH when you subscribe, and they'll give you $10 off. Boom! Linkage, 
geared for the automotive life. Subscribe today at LinkageMag.com. So let's talk about this a little bit, and that is challenges. Uh, What kind of challenges did you face starting this kind of a business, or do you face on an everyday basis that maybe put you back on your heels? But more importantly, how'd you overcome those things? So I I, I guess there was a couple, actually. Uh, One was sort of working out how to start AR, or additive frustration, as it's, <laughs> let's call it AR, it's a lot safer for everybody. Um, <laughs> starting that as a lean project, we didn't we didn't have a great deal of funds. Kim remained working full-time, and I was sort of, as I mentioned earlier, I would sort of work from, I'd still do contracts to try, to sort of top up the coffers while we're going. Right. And then a lot of that initial fund, and a lot of those initial projects, the money didn't go back to pay us, it went into investment. So, you know, we go out and say buy a 3d scanner or we'd, we'd look into new technologies and what we could work appropriately with and stuff like that uh and um and what have you there the other big challenge was sort of working out what we could do and doing it appropriately um so by that i mean you know if we were 3d printing something directly you know making sure that the materials were up to scratch making sure that we felt comfortable selling the uh, products made from those materials we do make um, custom ignition components. They're quite expensive, but they're usually for cars. So we've done um, uh, caps and rotors for Oscar 1100s. We've done uh, rotor arms for Oscar Twin Sparks, which are uh, a pretty major piece of uh, engineering in their own right. And right. we had ended up developing our own um, our own materials to replace Bakelite, so that we uh, we oh, would wow. so we'd 3D print the molds for these. And then basically, lit- this was happening literally in the basement at home at this point. <laughs> I love it. We, you know, I'd, I'd start researching sort of um, cold castable materials that we could use and then sort of fillers that we could add to it to change the properties somewhat. And then I found there's a there's a piece of equipment with the fantastic name of a megalorometer. Oh, I uh, love that. Sounds like something that that ev- like an evil scientist would have in his lab. And, and it looks like it too. It's, uh, it has this sort of magneto handle on the side that generates a very high voltage at, um, at a low amperage. And it basically measures resistance at the megaohms level, which is what you'd need for something that, say, you're going to make a distributor cap out of. And so I found, a, I found an army surplus one on eBay. Where else? Apart from electrocuting myself a few times it's rather like <laughs> oh, when you when, it's like when you find that bad uh spot plug wire in oh, the yeah. car when it's running Yo, you know safe. Yeah, exactly <laughs> i found it <laughs> yeah exactly i'd make up test swatches of different sort of blends of this and sort of put the probes on there and we'd a find and there was two things we were looking for there as a technical challenge one was making sure that it actually worked as a as a good insulator at high voltages and the other was that it wouldn't leave a carbon trace so uh-huh. you know it so a lot of materials, if you have an arc going across, they get so the arc is so hot it carbonizes the surface of the material, and then all of a sudden you start getting cross firing and stuff like that. Yeah. And so we we, we found out we I'd actually managed to make a material that was three times had three times the dielectric strength of the original. So we cool. outperformed the Bakelite by about three hundred percent, and an added plus was that we could actually color match it. Oh wow! So you can't even tell. You can't even tell when you exactly. look at it. Exactly. Yeah. So we're at the level where we, we, when, say, for instance, for the the rotor arm for the twin spark, it's um, it's quite an unbalanced thing, and it's going to be spinning up to about four thousand RPM. And so I had I'd worked out how heavy this was going to be and how heavy the brass components were going to be that we machined on the CNC machine. And then we had a counterbalance that originally was a, gl- a glass fiber counterbalance that they used in the factory, except we could get away with just 3D printing it in a, in a uh, ABS plastic. Oh my God, and the nice, wow. thing about it is, the nice thing about that was I could 
put all of those numbers into our CAD program and I could work out where the center of gravity was. And that way I made sure that when I finished making it, it wasn't going to cause an imbalance that was going to wear out the uh, the bushes on the distributor too quickly and stuff like that. This is the sort of level we go to. And it, yeah. it's, you, know, you might think it's a little excessive, but it, it's, uh, it matters. And we made this particular part and this was one of our first products. And we did a trial fit on the car, started up, ran fantastic, a little MT4, a little jewel of a car. And, um, and then I spoke to uh, the mechanic who looks after the car for the owner, and I said, oh, how, how's it running? He says, well, I guess it's okay. It's in the middle of a thousand-mile endurance race across Israel at the moment. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Well, there you go. There's a little pressure for your, your little part. Oh, yeah. yeah, that was that was a really long week waiting to hear how it did. Hoping the phone didn't ring. That's for exactly. sure. Wow. Well, you know what? This is fascinating because you're helping keep these wonderful vehicles on the road. And for people that love old cars like you and I, it's so important. And the fact that you're creating parts that are actually more robust and really can't be told that they're not old. So if you're in the world of Concorde and so forth, these cars can still be enjoyed by people. So I'm, I'm really, my hat's off to you and Kim for what you guys are doing because otherwise these vehicles are useless. They just sit and that's about it. So this is really spectacular. You know, I know you're a car guy, obviously, and I'd love for you to share a story about a special vehicle in your life, one that stood out for you. Okay, it's probably... It's referred to as the other woman sometimes, but it's uh, <laughs> probably what I have now. And it's and it's it's nothing terribly exotic but it it means a lot to me it's um i have a 1969 rover 2000 cc so i don't know if you're familiar with these these were little uh british sports sedans back in the 60s and they were sort of they've often been cited as sort of the beginning of the small the small sports sedan sort of yeah class that later went on to m3s and stuff like that this particular car i've i've owned for about eight years but i'm only the second owner uh, actually oh, really wow yeah uh, unfortunately, the previous owner passed away the year before last. He was in his late 90s. He bought it brand new in 69. And for the last sort of eight years that he owned the car, he wasn't able to drive it. Um, and the car sort of fell up, um, basically didn't enjoy it not being used. Um, and it had gone through a number of sort of disinterested mechanics because it's a, it's a very odd car. What I love about the car is that this was Rover that was up until then seen as a very conservative, very staid sort of motor company, deciding that they were going to throw everything they could at it with a young engineering team. So so the original prototypes were all gas turbine powered. So they were just they were jet powered. And what? if you look at Yeah. So if you look at um the Rover T four, yeah. um if you do there's a a fantastic little uh, sort of um, um, newsreel on YouTube you can find where they're talking about it being sent to the New York Motor Show in I think sixty one. Oh my gosh. Basically, everything from the A-pillar back is identical to what they produced. Everything from the front was a front-wheel drive, jet-engined. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Wow. 140-mile-an-hour uh, car in 1961, you know. Oh, my God. Well, you know, they didn't import those over here. So, you know, we didn't see that vehicle in this part of the world. But Well, they only made four because they realized it. Well, did eight miles to the gallon. Well, that one, yeah, that one was a little <laughs> bit of an oddity for sure. But the car you're, you're talking about that you have, they made a fair number of those, didn't they? Oh, yeah. Um, it was so advanced. I mean, it, it was such an advanced car technically that they remained in production until 76. Um, oh, that's that's pretty good. Yeah, that's a long run. Yeah. Yeah, and you know you have four-wheel disc brakes with inboard discs at the back. You have uh, horizontal coil springs up front with cantilevers, like 
Formula One, uh, and you have a DD on axle at the back, and you've got about a 50-50 weight distribution. Wow. And one of the fun things about the car is that you can actually throw it around as though it's a much smaller car, and it will surprise people. Um, yeah. Now, which is, which, is that a four-door or two-door? It's a four-door. So a, salo- so a saloon, basically. So Yeah, it's a four-door saloon. At the time, in, when I was growing up, they were considered large. Now they look they Tiny. look minute. Even yeah, even even next to a modern mini, mm-hmm. they look small. Wow. But uh, well, you Brits raced a lot of saloons, so you think about the yeah. Jaguar saloons and all the other cars that ran, and then uh, some of the other cars that were more, I would say, boxy in shape, but they were raced very successfully. So, and I like your terminology, the other woman. It's a, it's a safe other woman to have if you're a married man, right? Exactly. There's uh, yeah. <laughs> my wife claims that there's 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 the car. There's my beloved cat, and there's her. And sometimes she's number one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that's the thing about my wife. If she can't find me, she can always find me in the garage. So uh, yeah, I'm not at the pub or uh, playing around anywhere. So there yeah. you go. I'm gonna crawl into your skull a little bit here, Stephen, and be your car psychologist. If you were manifest as a vehicle, what would Stephen be? But more importantly, why? Oh, that was a really good question. I love that. That one, that one made me smile a lot. Um, it would have to be a Citroen SM. It, okay. It, it was someone trying to make something absolutely unique and absolutely special using the cutting edge of technology that they had available to them at the time and not necessarily worrying about whether or not they could sell the damn thing. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, there's something about it. I mean, every aspect of the car is just staggering. You know, you've got this beautiful little V6 Maserati engine. You've got this, you've got this amazing engineering that's going on with the suspension and the whole hydraulic system. And then you've got styling that, it's absolutely, you know, it, it looks alien even now, you know. Yeah. You know, when I think of that car, I think about Burt Reynolds in 1974. I was two years away from graduating from high school and the movie called The Longest Yard. And in that movie in the beginning, he was driving one of those being chased by the police. He ended up in prison and ended up starting a prison football team to beat the guards. And that's the whole concept. But the fact that they picked that car... Not sure why. Maybe Hollywood couldn't agree to have anybody else give them a car that they would end up crashing into the. I think he went into the water or the bay at the end or something. You know, <laughs> a lot of you think about 007 and when they first approached uh, uh, Aston Martin, they said, "Well, I don't know if we want you using one of our cars and shooting up people and crashing." And of course, they made the right choice and said, "Okay." But uh, yeah, go check out that movie. You can find it on oh, YouTube. Longest the Longest Yard. Yard, Burt Reynolds driving a Citroen SM with that wonderful Maserati engine. And if you look at that chase scene, and if you've ever driven in a Citroen, which I have, a good friend of mine, Kenji Yoshino, who was an early guest here, he owns a Citroen's part business in Seattle, of all places, and he's Japanese, so go figure. <laughs> he gave me rides in many of the Citroens he had, and I, I've never ridden in a car like those cars. They're like being in, in the clouds or something. Oh God, absolutely. Um, and one of my one of my earlier car memories was when I was in secondary school. Our uh, deputy head teacher had a Citroen CX, which uh-huh. was sort of the successor to the DS. And that part of London, there were speed bumps everywhere. And, <laughs> of course. Um, and I just remember, you know, we'd go over them at forty, fifty miles an hour. Yeah, and, and the just car just even, no, it, it just, just float. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was this sort of, okay, this isn't a Ford Cortina. You know? No, 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 no. And, e- and even the seats had this foam that was like 
10 miles deep. You just, oh you just yeah. sunk into it. Yeah, there, if any of you listeners ever get a chance to drive or be in a Citroen, uh, I know that uh, my friend Keith Martin from Sports Car Market Magazine, he recently bought one. Now, sadly, this weekend, he posted a picture of it being loaded onto a tow truck uh, because it broke down on his spirited weekend drive, but that's old cars, you know, vintage cars, they they kind of break down. Is there a great book that you'd like to share with us, Stephen, that you really enjoyed? Yeah, there's a couple, actually. Okay. There's uh, Not Much of an Engineer, which is by Stanley Hooker. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He was chief engineer for Rolls-Royce. Oh, okay. That's where the name came from. Yeah. Right. And the, 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 the joke in the title is that he actually studied as a mathematician at, at Oxford yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, when, he came, when he went in for an inf- interview with Rolls-Royce. Uh, Interesting. The chief engineer of the time said, well, you're not much of an engineer. <laughs> but what was fascinating is his, it, it, the paper he'd written at the time was on supersonic air uh, flow. And he joined during the Second World, near the beginning of the Second World War, when, of course, they were building Merlin engines for the the RAF. And um, he ended up applying his theories to um, supercharger design within a a couple of months, increasing uh, increasing supercharger output by about 30%. Incredible. Wow. Yeah. So that was the beginning. And then, of course, later on, he got involved in the... um, in their their jet engine program, um, and he also spent some time with De Havilland, so he was involved with developing jet engines not only for Concorde but also for the Harrier jump jet, and um, and pretty much the whole beginning of uh, of the of the jet of uh, the uh, gas turbine sort of development for the world. And absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I've been on airplanes, you know, where you look down, you see the RR on the engine, and. I was leaving London once, coming back to the U.S., and on takeoff, we had a bird strike. And Oof. so, yeah, the engine actually, like, exploded. I mean, there's fire coming out of it. I'm looking out the window going, well, I guess this is it. <laughs> well, we, we flew north, dumped the fuel, came back and landed, and they didn't want us parking at the gate for some reason. Maybe they didn't have a, a whole slot. So we had to walk down below that 747. It was a 747. If you ever walked under a 747, oh, they're they are giant. And there, the pilot was standing there, and I walked over to him. And looked up in the engine that's all black and you see the blades broken out of it. And I said, wow. And he looks at me and he says, bloody fine waste of a fine Rolls Royce engine. <laughs> I'll never forget that. You know, he was just casual and I'm thinking I was going to die the last two hours of my life. Right. But uh, so not his first rodeo, obviously. <laughs> no, no, no. He'd been around the block a few times and in the air a few times. You mentioned another book, perhaps. Yes. Yeah, so the other one is um, actually um, another, even though. Uh, is um, Neville Shute, who's very well known as a novelist, but he also wrote a memoir called Slide Roll, and he was an aviation engineer. Um, uh, he was involved in the R100, which was a pre-war airship design in the UK, and there was another airship that was developed by a rival company called the R101, which famously uh, crashed and burned, as he's had a tendency to do. But he also started his own small aircraft country, uh, company after the war. Oh, wow. And it's fascinating because it's his background was as much about sort of developing what was then a small business at a small level but also looking at the technical side of it it's just a fascinating read you know especially at that point in history when everything's changing well gee sounds like a guy i know named stephen dibden (laughs) well a little bit a little bit hmm. i'm gonna let you go before i let you go on a, a cool ultimate ride i have an open checkbook it doesn't matter what it costs today i'm gonna fund the whole thing I'm a dream come true, right? You can pick any vehicle. You can be driving with anyone living or deceased, and you can be driving anywhere. What does that ultimate drive look like for you? 
Right. Uh, well, your, your checkbook could be a brief sigh of relief, probably. Okay. Um, oh, nice. Thanks. Uh, yeah. Um, it would probably be a Caterham 7. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. Um, probably an SV, because I'm wider than I used to be, just okay. like the car was. Yeah, well, me too. Um, yeah, there's a, a fantastic road in in Kent, in the southeast of England. It's the old A21 uh, that goes basically from Brands Hatch down to Shoreham and Seven Oaks, And it runs along the side of the Darrant Valley, which is this gorgeous valley right along the Pilgrim's Way, you know, and it just has these wonderful vistas. There's these great sweeping curves. There's a couple of little chicanes. Nice. It's just a really fun road to drive on. And as a passenger, I'd probably have Colin Chuck just oh. because I... <laughs> He's a bit of a hero of mine, although I probably would have hated working for him. Well, most people did. Yeah, he was a <laughs> bit of a slave driver and a demanding guy, but uh, definitely innovative guy, which fits with who I see you as, Stephen, which I think is cool. And I mentioned in our pre-show chat, uh, I drove a car that Colin was involved in, my first race car, which a Lotus 18 Formula Junior. So there you go. Kind of fun. That sounds like a wonderful ride. And especially for a guy like you, you know, you've taken us on a wonderful journey today. I'm so glad that we connected. I want to do a, a quick shout out. Thank you to Sean Smith, Sean Smith Photography. He's the one who introduced me to you. So uh, I get introduced to a lot of interesting people from all over the world by past guests of mine. Thank you, Sean. Before I let you go, is there a success quote or a mantra or some kind of words of inspiration you could share with us today? It's actually an old engineering director of mine had this phrase, which I sort of adopted, uh, and I'm quite happy to plagiarize it, which was, uh, if you're working this hard, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> and, and explain deeper what you mean by that or he meant by that. Um, the more you add complexity to something, the more chances you have a failure in the final product. Ah. So, you know, if you have to keep on adding things to make it work right, there's something at core wrong with the, with the, with the philosophy you're following. And, I, and it, it, it's sort of it, it, that whole thing of adding simplicity makes, us, makes for a stronger, pro, uh, stronger item at the end of it. And, it. and it goes for business as it does for technical world. Yeah. Well, I think so. And if you go back to the thought of Colin Chapman, how to make it lighter and better, there's a relationship to that one as well, right? Absolutely. Add lightness and simplify. Add lightness yeah. and simplify. I think it's great. You know, another great saying this reminded me of is perfection is achieved not when there's nothing left to add, but when there is nothing left to take away. Oh, I like that. That's a good one. <laughs> I made a meme out of that. I'll send it to you, my friend. That okay. good. How can people learn more about additive restoration? Okay. Well, you can go to our website, which is additiverestoration.com. Another way that's a great way of contacting me is through our Instagram account, where we we occasionally, we should probably post more, but we occasionally post, uh, which is also uh, Instagram.com slash, uh, slash additive restoration. And you can also see some of the fun things we're working on at any time. Yeah, I encourage you to follow their Instagram. There's some very cool stuff there uh, for sure. So I'll put links to Additive Restoration, their Instagram account, so you can follow along. And of course, if you have an old car or you're a restoration guy or you have someone who's fabricating that uh, can't figure out how to get that part made, uh, Stephen and his wife are the ones to contact at Additive Restoration. Stephen, thanks for being so generous today with your time and expertise. This was a great, fun talk until you and I talk again, my friend, or I need a part. I'll see you <laughs> down the road. Okay. Thank you for the interview. It was lovely chatting with you. This was great fun. Thank you. Take care. If your car started today, well, thank a tech. If that truck delivering your goods today got to your home or your business, thank a tech. If that airplane you rode in took off and landed safely, 
And if that boat you're riding in arrived at the dock safe and sound, that's right. Thank a tech. One thing the pandemic has taught us is that great techs keep America rolling. They are essential workers and we need them. Support career and technical education by getting involved with TechForce Foundation. It's a Cars Yeah charity of choice. Learn more at techforce.org today. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah.